This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. How socially connected are you? 300,000 Torontonians say they have no one. And the connection between diabetes and heart disease and what you can do about it. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. German prosecutors are seeking a two-year suspended sentence for the 97-year-old former Nazi concentration camp secretary accused of complicity in the murder of more than 10,000 people. Ermgard Firschner, who's been on trial for over a year in Germany, is the first woman in decades to be tried there for Nazi-era crimes. She is alleged to have aided the killing at the Nazis' Stutthof camp in occupied Poland. You'll recall she fled her retirement home as her trial was set to begin and managed to evade police for several hours. The prosecutor says the trial is of outstanding historical importance and may be the last of its kind due to the passage of time. 60% of American nursing home residents are behind on COVID vaccines, and so are more than three in four workers. The survey by AARP finds that booster uptake was worse in some states like Arizona, where 78% of residents were behind on their shots, and Alabama, where 89% of staff were not up to date. U.S. nursing home residents and staff account for nearly a fifth of all American COVID deaths. The widely held concept that levels of so-called good cholesterol in the blood can indicate heart disease risk varies by race. A study in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology finds that in contradiction to what has generally been assumed, low HDL levels did not lead to any higher risk of heart disease in black people. Among white people, however, those with low HDL levels below a certain threshold had a 22% higher risk for coronary heart disease compared with those whose HDL levels were higher. However, high HDL levels, which were thought to be protective, were not linked to lower heart disease risks in either race. Forget generational stereotypes. Baby boomers are just as addicted to smartphones as millennials. New data suggests older generations are not much different from young people in their smartphone usage, and the mental health effects may not be too different. A study done by a group of senior living communities across the U.S. found that on average, Boomers were on their smartphones five hours a day, almost the same as millennials. This is concerning for mental health experts who point to research that suggests that Facebook interferes with in-person connections, sleep, memory, 
and potentially contributes to depression and anxiety. According to the Pew Research Study, two-thirds of boomers own a smartphone and six in ten are on social media. Charles is giving his staff a one-time bonus of up to a 1000 Canadian to help them with the cost of living crisis. It'll be paid on top of this month's salary with some of the money coming from the king's private income. The group called Republic, which campaigns for the abolition of the monarchy, calls the bonus offensive and a ploy to persuade people that King Charles cares. The group says that while everyone else is facing cuts in pay and benefits, Charles avoids inheritance taxes and costs taxpayers tens of millions every year. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. How connected are you to family and friends? We keep talking about how important that is and how the pandemic has taken its toll. In its second-ever in-depth look at social capital in the city, the Toronto Foundation found a shocking number of people who say they have no friends or family to turn to, as well as a big drop in the number of people who volunteer. I talked with the Foundation's president and CEO, Sharon Avery. In the few years we've been through the pandemic, our recent study shows uh, when interviewed, about 200,000 Torontonians say they don't have any close friends to turn to, and about 300,000 Torontonians, that's like a third of our of our neighbours, say they have no one to depend on when they would really need someone. And so... Uh, and no family. Stark. And no family. It's a lot of disconnection at this point um, in the last three very hard years for folks. How much did those numbers increase from the last time you did this survey? That's about a 20% increase um, in both statistics. It really does represent a lot of the the isolation folks are feeling at this stage uh, in the pandemic. We found that people are less connected to each other than they've been. Uh, we did this study back in 2018, so we have a benchmark and we know how close folks were. And our social capital back in Toronto back then was very strong, um, and we've seen a decline. You say that a lot of this has to do with the pandemic uh, because people were isolated physically. We for sure think that that, you know, there are lots of good reasons people were isolated and we're not making a judgment on that. But for sure, it's taking its toll. And we know that human contact, face to face connections um, really uh, affect our entire well-being, not just as individuals, although that's a fairly um uh, evident, uh, but as a community, as, as a collective, um, the more we're connected, the stronger our ties, the stronger our trust to others, the more we feel a sense of belonging and optimism and hope for the future. And so we did this uh, measurement uh, of social capital in Toronto because we wanted to see how Toronto was doing. And it's not doing well. There's kind of a push-pull thing I see. On the one hand, people are really anxious for connection, but on the other hand, some of them uh, kind of have given up and are less anxious. Uh, what do you see on that front? Well, I think this is where we see a difference based on um, some of the demographic uh, and socioeconomic groups. So a group I'm particularly worried about are young folks, uh, particularly women, 
Um, they seem in our study to have the least optimistic outlooks. Um, they report the poorest mental health. Um, now, on the other side, they are also the most likely to volunteer. So that gives us some hope. Torontonians with disabilities, they have lower life satisfaction and well-being, but are also more connected uh, to their community activities. So what we're, what is, what's interesting is that each um, demographic group has a slightly different set of issues. Seniors, for sure, uh, more isolated. They were also less technically connected through, so we saw that if you weren't technically connecting with folks using technology before the pandemic, you didn't do it through the pandemic. And so I think we all thought, oh, well, maybe we just made up for it by using Zoom and, and our smartphones, but it didn't, it doesn't replace the face to face connection. Yeah. And Zoom gets pretty tiresome. It does. Yes. I think we're all a little tired of it. What were the particular issues for older people? I think the I think there's issue and opportunity for us with older folks because one of the biggest declines we saw between 2018 and today was in civic engagement. So this is volunteering and we know that our seniors have been enormously involved in volunteering and we saw actually the highest drop in their volunteering uh through the pandemic which makes an awful lot of sense when you think about the public health risks they would have faced. Um, but my hope is that we, with this study, we can start encouraging folks to step back in, to be, uh, uh, to go back to the causes that they care about and to start volunteering again. I think it will not only, um, help the sector that desperately needs them, um, to help our, our most vulnerable populations, but also it will give them a sense of purpose and connection that they are likely missing, uh, for the last couple of years. What yeah. about, donors to charities? Often where people volunteer is also where they donate. And so, yes, we've seen a drop in donations that translates to about $180 million loss to Toronto charities. Um, and these are often the, the smaller grassroots organizations and community organizations that mean a lot. It is um, uh, donors and volunteers that we need desperately uh, right now. Uh, and it's a good time to talk about it leading into the holiday season. And, and uh, people are starting to get into the mood, but we really want people to be conscious that we need you now more than ever. What do you tell people who feel they have no one to turn to? How should they turn that around? I would say that this is where we need organizations that support folks in isolation, folks with disabilities to really step up and exercise their social capital strengths to help uh, with outreach and engagement of these folks. Because it is really hard um, when you are feeling very alone to actually make a change. Um, I'm encouraging individuals, you know, pay attention to who's in your neighborhood. Uh, when we did this study in 2018, I had this realization, one of the outcomes of the study, and it's still true today, is that the more neighbors that you know on your street the higher your quality of life. It's a direct correlation. And we did that study, and I will admit to you, Libby, I didn't actually know many of my neighbors. And so as a result of that study, I went out and I knocked on doors, and I've, I've now 
have friends on the street. We have a very diverse street in terms of age and stage. And it has, it really does make a difference. And so if, if it's as simple as smiling when you get on the elevator in your condo and saying hello to, to your friends, you know, to your neighbors, these things make a real difference. And sometimes it's the one friendly moment uh, a, an individual has in a day. Sharon Avery, thanks so much. Thanks so much for, for talking about this, Libby, and sharing it with your listeners. That was Sharon Avery of the Toronto Foundation. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, heart disease and diabetes and what you can do about it. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. It's Diabetes Awareness Month, and every day, 640 Canadians are diagnosed with the disease. That's one person every three minutes. Many more are unaware they have diabetes or prediabetes, and that raises their risk for heart disease. I reached cardiologist Dr. Shelley Zeroth at St. Boniface Hospital in Winnipeg. Those people living with diabetes, as you point out, are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And the longer they have it for, that also increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. I think there's a number of reasons why this happens. First of all, type 2 diabetes, you know, affects the blood vessels in different ways, including making them more prone to develop blockages or coronary artery disease. In addition, patients living with type 2 diabetes are more likely to have hypertension, and that itself is a risk factor for coronary artery disease or cardiovascular disease. And furthermore, they are tend to be more likely to be obese as well. And we know that obesity is another risk factor for coronary artery disease. And then diabetes lends itself to having poorly controlled cholesterol levels as well. And that is another cardiac risk factor. So, you know, a lot of these conditions go hand in hand with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. How often and how should people monitor their heart health along with their sugar and all the other things that go along with diabetes? People should, you know, attend their primary care provider on a regular basis. And depending on the number of cardiac risk factors you have and or how well your blood sugar is controlled, they may monitor you on a different basis. However, it's generally recommended that patients with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, have an EKG on an annual basis. And then in Canada, at least right now, we we focus on symptom-based screening for additional heart testing. So if you were to have shortness of breath or swelling in your feet, those are signs of a potential underlying diagnosis of heart failure where the heart pump is weak or stiff then that would lend itself to investigations, including perhaps some blood work and some heart tests like an ultrasound of the heart called an echocardiogram. If 
perhaps you are having symptoms of chest pain, you may also get additional blood tests and also a referral for consideration of a stress test. So it's really on an individual basis. On a population level in Canada, typically EKGs are done at the very least. We hear a lot about the benefits of diet and exercise. Can good diet and exercise actually reverse your risk? Healthy lifestyle changes can lower your risk for heart disease as much as it can lower your risk for diabetes as well. So follow a healthy diet, more vegetables and fruits and whole grains, fewer processed foods. Those kind of lifestyle changes will also help you achieve a healthy weight. If you say a 200-pound person lost 5% of their weight, so that's about 10 pounds, that can lower your triglycerides, which is a form of cholesterol, and improve your blood sugar. And then getting active also can improve your blood sugar control, at least improving that A1C number that we follow in patients with type 2 diabetes and being physically active really changes the way your body uses insulin, which is a hormone that allows cells in your body to use blood sugar for energy. So you'll have better control of your blood sugar levels, and that also lowers your risk of heart disease as well. And um, you know, you want to aim for at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity, um, like a good brisk walk outside. The other thing that really um, struck me are the number of people that have undiagnosed diabetes and pre-diabetes. And I know that by the time they come and see you, they have been diagnosed. But what should people watch out for? That's a great question. And you're so right. As a cardiologist, most of the patients I see already have had a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And so for those people who aren't sure, see your primary care provider. And people over the age of 40, every three years, should be screened by their primary care provider for a potential diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. But the symptoms to watch out for, excessive urination, unintentional weight loss, even fatigue, some of the symptoms can be really nonspecific as well. So, uh, you know, if any question in your mind, reach out to your primary care provider. Thank you so much, Dr. Shelley Zeroth. Thank you. That was Dr. Shelley Zeroth. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.